We are continuing in our series through the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, and we'll get started. Up to this point in the book of Matthew, um, Jesus has been telling the world, and in a unique way, his disciples, about the inbreaking kingdom of God. And not only has Jesus been talking about it, uh, but he's also been demonstrating what it looks like uh, for God's kingdom to come or his will to be done in a given place. And, and as a result of this activity, a, a movement has started. And, and so everywhere he goes, the crowds are pressing in. And, and there's this um, buzzing of excitement and potential and anticipation all centered around this one man. It's all been instigated by Jesus himself. And so if Jesus is in a particular town, uh, then God will move powerfully in that time and place and people are flocking to him. In the coming weeks, we are going to hit a sort of a turning point in the book of Matthew as Jesus begins to equip and empower his disciples or his followers, his apprentices, to then go out and do the same type of work that they've seen Jesus do. And so today is sort of the, the turning point or the hinge uh, between one and the next. We pick up in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. It says this, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. He's talking about the kingdom, and he's showing them the kingdom. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Before we start unpacking those verses, I'll ask that you join me in one more prayer. Jesus, as we um, contemplate what these simple words would have meant to the first disciples and what they mean to us as your disciples still following you thousands of years later, uh, I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears and our minds and our hearts to the potential of what's possible today as we listen to your voice. And would we learn to listen to that voice uh, over and above the voices of the culture and the voices of doubt and shame and fear and anything else that would hold us back from living the life that you call us to? Would it be your voice that we hear this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, really simple teaching today. Uh, I just want to unpack these verses uh, first by talking briefly about the state of our own uh, harvest field, so to speak, um, and then uh, ever so briefly uh, by talking about sort of the means by which we then approach uh, the harvest that Jesus is talking about. And when I say harvest field, uh, what I really mean is the places uh, that God has called us to love, serve, and share the gospel with, uh, both locally and uh, globally. But we'll start uh, right here in our own backyard. It is no secret that Christianity is in decline in America. 
Over the last few decades, uh, the rest of the Western world, and Europe in particular, uh, has seen a massive shift from faith to secularism and materialism. Europe, once the very center of Christianity, has now become a secular society. Its once prominent churches are now being sold off and turned into bars and breweries. And if America thought that it was immune to this trend, then the last couple of years have certainly served as a wake-up call. In recent years, America is now seeing a major cultural shift from a place of faith to a place of skepticism. It was not long ago when it seemed that everyone in America had faith in God and to not have faith or belief in God uh, was considered crazy. You, you were the outlier. You were the minority. And just a few dec- decades later, it seems that fewer and fewer people believe in the divinity of Jesus and now you're crazy if you do. In addition, uh, those in power, sort of the the vocal minority, seem to be growing in their rejection of Christianity and even their opposition to it. And and this growing tension, it, it manifests itself in government bodies and in blogs and in school systems and in social circles and even in the belittling remarks of the average college professor. We are now entering uh, what's being called a postmodern, post-Christian culture that, um, interestingly enough, believes that history is progressing somewhere, uh, that it's headed somewhere, that justice and equality are worthy of pursuit, all of which, of course, are thoroughly Christian concepts. But they don't want God to play any role in our future or in our present. We, we still have this sort of collective desire as a culture for the kingdom of God. We just don't want the king. The winds of skepticism are beginning to sweep across America as they've already swept across Europe and studies are showing that people are beginning to leave their faith in droves. One study that I read estimated that something like 4,000 people a day are leaving their faith in the Western world. And America seems headed that direction. And the Pacific Northwest, in some ways, is sort of leading the charge into the secular age. Even here in Spokane, it's estimated that a mere 10% of the population is connected in any meaningful way to a church community. And in the Spokane region, there are hundreds of thousands of people who don't know Jesus. Not only that, but secularism and materialism are telling a narrative in which faith is groundless and naive, perhaps even bigoted and dangerous. And that faith has only flourished in times and places where people were without science, uh, without logic, and without reason. Where is a fitting place for religion? Well, naturally, it it must have thrived in the Dark Ages or, or the Stone Age. 
when it had room to flourish. Today, secularism would claim, we have no room for religion and in fact no need for religion. And the more we free our culture from the outdated and bigoted beliefs of the, of the past, the faster we will get to where we're headed. In fact, they claim, religion may have been the very reason that we were stuck in the Stone Age to begin with. Man is the answer, they say, not God. And in fact, belief in God has only held us back from achieving our full potential all along. Man has yet to see what man is fully capable of. And so secularism is telling this narrative in which the outdated and and superstitious religion of Christianity peaked in the medieval age and has been in steady decline ever since. And the hope of the most uh, ardent atheists who are leading the charge is that we are at last coming into an age where we will finally be free of it all. An age uh, where no one wants or needs religion anymore. And, And where America is headed and where Europe has already gone it seems to only confirm their narrative. It, it creates this sense that perhaps Christianity survived for a bit in the West, sent missionaries to foreign nations with varying degrees of success, and now the movement that Jesus started some 2,000 years ago in the ancient Near East will finally die under the weight of a suffocating secularism and at last be snuffed out. The world will never be reached for Jesus in their minds because there won't be any missionaries left to send. And at last, across the Western world and beyond, logic and reason will rule and reign. The only problem with their narrative is that it's not true. The gospel of Jesus, which started as a Jewish movement in Jerusalem, overcame the incredible hurdle of translating itself over to a non-Jewish or Gentile culture, which had no Old Testament, no history of following God or being his people, no collective awareness of who God was. And yet, somehow it made the jump. And and the seeds that were planted um, through the book of Acts and through Paul and through the first missionaries slowly grew to dominate the landscape of Western thinking. So much so that it has become, over the last 2,000 years, the most formative and central element of Western life and culture. The West is what it is because of the gospel. And so, for most of the last 2,000 years, or or, or really more particularly the last 1,600 years, the West has actually been the center of Christianity. And, And this is something that would have shocked the early disciples to no end. Jerusalem, once the center of the movement, slowly gave way to Rome and Constantinople. And Christianity has thrived in the Western world for centuries bordering on millennia. From there, 
missionaries were sent out just like they were from Jerusalem to the far reaches of the earth. In fact, Jesus' final instructions to his disciples post-resurrection was this. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And then he tells them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after centuries of sending missionaries to the ends of the earth with varying degrees of success, in recent history, we have begun to see their work take root in an unprecedented way. In fact, in many places worldwide, the gospel is now spreading like wildfire. Here are some examples. On the continent of Africa alone, 17,000 people a day have been giving their lives to Jesus every single day for almost 100 years. The continent of Africa now has more followers of Jesus than America has people. We're talking hundreds of millions, and these numbers in recent decades are on the rise. They are escalating. In communist China, where Christianity is illegal, in 1976, which is really just a few years ago, many of you were alive, there were one million followers of Jesus in communist China. And under a communist regime where Christianity is illegal, just a few decades later, there are 90 million believers in China. And they have the fastest growing church on planet Earth. In the Middle East, which is considered uh, by many to be the most difficult mission field on the planet, through underground church movements that can't be known by the government, people are carrying the gospel at the risk of their own lives. And it's estimated that over a million people a year in secrecy are giving their lives to Jesus all across the Middle East. The missionary seeds which were planted in the 19th century are now growing into a harvest beyond anything they could have imagined in their lifetimes. And in the West, we, we are still running to catch up with the implications. Just 100 years ago, which is a, a blip on the map of world history, 90% of all Protestant Christians lived in the West. And within our lifetimes, we have witnessed a major shift in global Christianity, such that 70% of all followers of Jesus now live outside of the Western world. The majority of the world's Christians now live in Africa and in Asia and in Latin America, the very places that we continue to think of as the mission field are quickly becoming the very center of Christianity. While at the same time, the Western world seems to be poised on the edge of this precipitous decline. As we enter 2018, 
there are more evangelicals in Nepal than there are in Spain. And the global movement of Jesus is at an all-time high. There are more followers of Jesus in the world today than there have ever been at any point in world history. And followers of Jesus make up a greater percentage of the world population than they ever have at any point in world history. The narrative of secular America has proven completely false. Their key assumption within secularization theory was that modernization would lead to a decline in religion on every level. Timothy Tennant says it this way. He says, Western scholars and liberal Christians have long predicted the demise of historic Christianity and the rise of a secular city. Their solution has been to call the church to abandon faith in the supernatural and the historic confessions of the Christian faith. They have argued that doctrines such as the deity of Christ, the Trinity, and the authority of the Bible are no longer credible or believable in the modern world. Therefore, Christianity should conform to the norms of Western secularism. The only problem is that the modern world has not turned into a secular city. And modernization has not led to the predicted collapse of religious faith. In fact, the exact opposite is happening. It seems the world is not diminishing in faith, but actually growing. And the church is currently experiencing its most dramatic growth in world history. And not only is it growing, but it's shifting as well. The global face of Christianity is no longer a wealthy, white, European male in his 50s. The global face of Christianity is now a young, poor African woman in her early 20s. And while Christianity threatens to dry up in the Western world, it is exploding worldwide. And the time will soon come when those places out there, which we've considered the mission field, will be sending missionaries to us. Back in May, uh, I got the privilege of going to uh, Uganda uh, to serve at a, a national conference for this kind of network of Ugandan pastors. And our friend Peter uh, is a native Ugandan. Uh, he came to faith in Jesus uh, some 30 years ago and then uh, planted a church, one single church in a small fishing village. And um, they, they planted the church and then they decided, hey, we want to start equipping people and training them to plant new churches. And several decades later, this movement of church planting churches has planted over 700 churches in Uganda alone. Over 700. And so once a year, they have a conference and they, they pull a bunch of their uh, church leaders together and kind of e equip them and, and train them and, and pour into them. And um, our little um, regional network of pastors actually got invited to go there and kind of lead the conference. Um, which was really humbling in, in a lot of ways. Um, but we got to go there and just spend time with them and encourage them and pour into them and pray for them and, and all of that. And so, uh, we're, we're, and it's an, an amazing week. At the end of the week, Peter stands up 
in front of, of the conference. And he says, brothers and sisters, guys, don't get too proud of what we've accomplished. Over 700, don't get too proud of what we've accomplished. We still have a lot of work to do in reaching our country for Jesus. We still have to push further into the bush. Everyone in Uganda needs to know who Jesus is. And guys, the time is coming when we're going to have to look beyond Uganda and we're going to start sending missionaries into the nations. One day America is going to need our help. And I've just returned from three months in Europe. And guys, we need to start sending missionaries to Europe because they've forgotten what they gave us. I love that. They've forgotten what, what they gave us. Brothers and sisters, here at River's Edge, we are at the ends of the earth. You are currently sitting in one of the greatest mission fields on planet earth. Will God send us out to the nations? Absolutely. He, he has and he will continue to do that to South Africa, to Uganda, to the Philippines, to Nicaragua, to Dubai. That's what he's done in 2017. He's going to continue doing that type of work. I think we're just getting started being a church for the nations. Uh, some of you already know that, that you're called to go out to the nations, whether for a week or for life. Some of you already know that. And so we don't want to miss that call. There are still billions of people who are not yet followers of Jesus and millions of them have never heard his name. The harvest is plentiful, to quote Jesus. And God wants to lead us to, to be a church for the nations that, that participates in, in the unprecedented global movement that is occurring right now. But my fear it is not that we will miss our call to the nations. My fear is that we will miss the call that's right in front of our eyes. We have always assumed that this would be the center of Christianity and, and that the most important mission fields would always exist out there in those places. But brothers and sisters, this is the ends of the earth and it is quickly becoming a global mission field which other churches will be sending people to. We live in an increasingly postmodern, post-Christian society that needs Jesus just as much as the Jews did in Jerusalem, just as much as the Romans did in Rome, and yet who are just as resistant to that call. And yet, what does Jesus say when he looks out at the crowd? Oh, those close-minded Israelites, those misled Muslims, those stupid atheists. If somebody, they, who do they think they are? They, they can't even defend what they believe in. They, they have broken philosophies 
and broken religions, if somebody would just go to them and tell them how dumb they're being and, and tell them that they're wrong, then surely all of this would go away. Is that what Jesus said when He saw the crowds? No. What did we read? It said, when He saw the crowds, He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. Here's the first thing that you need to know about the harvest field. If you're not acting out of compassion, don't go into the harvest field. If, if people in your mind are, are just targets to be won or, or a means of meeting your religious quota, then forget it. You would never want to be reduced down to a target for mission. So don't do that to other people. Partnering with Jesus for the harvest isn't about quotas or religious duties or, or proving your effectiveness as a disciple to yourself or to God or to others. It's about love. It's about catching a glimpse of God's love for the lost. Or better yet, allowing that love to swell up in your own heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul was a zealous defender of his religion and a persecutor of the first disciples. His great joy was to arrest and murder Christians. That, that was the purity of his zealous religious expression. And then he encounters Jesus in a dramatic way. And, and he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he's transformed. He becomes a follower of Jesus. And, and now, as a new person, he's looking back into his old world back at his fellow Jews who are doing exactly what he had just done. But now, he's looking back on them from God's perspective and with God's love. And, and, and this is what he says. He says, I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. In other words, what I'm about to tell you is so ridiculous that you'll think I'm making it up. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. In other words, if I could trade places with them and I could experience hell so that they could experience Christ, I would do it. If that's not the missional heart of God, I don't know what is. This, this is the heart and the attitude that drove Jesus to choose the cross. This is the heart and the attitude that, that drove the first disciples to give up their lives for the sake of the gospel. They, they knew this, this type of, of love that God had, that they went into the harvest field with compassion instead of condemnation. And in a post-Christian culture, if you are not moved by genuine love for the people that you're pursuing, they're going to sniff it out. It, it, they, can, they can sense it. They know it. They see it in you. If you're not being moved by compassion, 
then stay out of the harvest field. And when we look out at our post-Christian harvest fields, or even the world at large beyond that, we need to start seeing things from God's perspective, which means first and foremost that we act out of genuine love. And if you don't feel like you have that genuine love of God for the lost, then ask him for it. Pray and ask God that you would receive. It's vital, it's necessary to living this life. So first, we seek uh, for God's love and compassion. We ask for it. Second, we ask for God's eyes to see. Because when we look out at our Western world, at Europe and Australia and and even at our own nation, we can easily become discouraged and, and slip into fatalism. Well, I guess this is just the way that the world is headed. Well, I I guess these people don't really need Jesus in the modern age. I guess they've just moved on. I, I, I guess there's really nothing we can do. There's certainly no harvest to be had here. Really? Are, are those things actually true? Or are we just accepting the narrative that the secular culture hands us? Because when Jesus and his disciples looked out at the crowds in Matthew 9, they saw Jewish people, like like thousands of Jewish people. And if you think that Jewish people made for an easy harvest, then you haven't read the Bible. These, these people, the scriptures say, are going around and giving lip service to God, telling others how much they love God. And yet when he shows up on the scene, they crucify him and then hunt down his followers. This is not an easy harvest field. And yet when Jesus looks out on those crowds, the very same stubborn, skeptical, hypocritical, close-minded people that will call for his execution, his heart is moved with compassion. And he turns to his disciples and he says, wow, this place, this place is ready for a harvest. And if I'm a disciple, I'm thinking, really? Jesus, this place? Like, have you actually talked to these people? I don't, I don't see a harvest here. In fact, in, in a few we, over these next few weeks, we'll look at Jesus' instructions as he sends out his disciples. And in those instructions, he tells them what to do if they show up at a town and no one wants to hear the gospel. Hey, share the gospel with the whole town. Here's what to do if not a single person in the whole town will welcome you or respond. Here's what to do. Is that an easy harvest field or a difficult one? That sounds really difficult to me. And yet when Jesus looks out from God's perspective, he says there's a harvest to be had here. In fact, it's plentiful and it's getting ripe. And all we need is more harvesters. And now we look out at our post-Christian culture where people pride themselves on being open-minded and yet they aren't open to Jesus. Where, where people pride themselves on diversity unless they don't like what you believe. Where people pride themselves on inclusivity and yet use that somehow as a reason to exclude you. 
where free speech is exalted as a freedom, and yet when someone begins talking about Jesus, they're told to forcefully be quiet. Not here, not in this place. In a culture where skepticism and materialism and individualism and secularism are on the rise and faith is not, where anything that has to do with Jesus or the Bible is driven from the school systems, driven from the governments, driven from the universities that they started and stigmatized along the way, where few people are atheists And yet more and more of us are nodding our heads in agreement along with our arguments. And and Jesus is looking out on that harvest field, on Spokane, on on the Pacific Northwest, on the nation that we call America, which in our lifetimes may become the destination for foreign missionaries. And he's looking out on it with compassion and love, and he's saying, whoa, there's a harvest to be had in this place. You just need eyes to see it. This place, Jesus says, it is buzzing with potential. In fact, all I need is more harvesters. And 2,000 years later, disciples in China and in the Middle East and in the Pacific Northwest are looking out on their harvest fields and saying, really, Jesus, the the harvest is plentiful because I don't see people lining up at the door. Oh, wait, yeah, here they come and they're carrying torches. Well, that's interesting. Not the way I wanted them to approach the church. And yet, for the last 2,000 years, Jesus has been inviting his disciples to see things from his perspective. What we have to understand is that nobody thinks that they want to hear the gospel. Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists and atheists are all equally certain that they don't want whatever it is that the church has to offer. They might not know what it is, but they're convinced that they don't need it. And and each of those harvest fields is is different, for sure. Sharing Jesus in a a pre-Christian culture is different than sharing him in in a post-Christian one. There are differences in the harvest fields that we ought to be aware of, but but there are also some stunning similarities across the board in, in, in that none of them know Jesus in that none of them fully knows what the church offers, but they're convinced they don't need it. And yet Jesus knows all of them, and Jesus has compassion on all of them, and he sees potential in all of them. And he looks out on, the, on these vast spiritual landscapes, all rejecting him f- for different reasons. And he says, in this place, the harvest is plentiful. Open your eyes because we're going to do something about this. And notice what he asked the disciples to do. He's inviting them to to view the world from God's perspective, uh, full of compassion, full of potential. There's a harvest within reach. But notice what happens next. Uh, Jesus doesn't say, the field is ripe for the harvest, now get to work. What he 
actually says is that the harvest is plentiful. Now pray. Huh. Well, that's interesting. So we should start with prayer? I mean, that's not really what we want to hear. In fact, I'm going to argue that in our culture, prayer is actually really difficult for us. As Americans, we love to do stuff. And, and so even when we approach a concept like, like the harvest field, typically we just want strategy and we want programs and, and we want results and we want efficiency. We're not as keen on prayer. As we speak, um, the gospel is sweeping across the Muslim world in underground movements, each and every participant risking their lives to carry the message and to participate in the underground church. And so first dozens, and then hundreds, and then thousands, and now hundreds of thousands of people are coming to know Jesus in what is considered the most difficult mission field on planet Earth. And they have some strategies for sharing their faith in, in ways that are inviting and, and, and non-confrontational. And, and so I'm not saying that we don't have room to grow in, in learning how best to share our faith because I, I think we do. But do you know what the number one determining factor has been in every movement, in every miracle, in every underground church, in every revival, hands down, the number one factor in every single one of them was prayer. They pray. They pray for the lost and they pray for a move of the Holy Spirit and they pray for people by region and they pray for people by name. Sometimes all night and into the morning they pray. And the people they're praying for are, are having dreams and visions of Jesus. Prayers are being answered left and right. Entire mosques are coming to Jesus at the same time. The, the, the terminally ill are being healed and sometimes even the dead are being raised back to life. And the movement just keeps breaking out. It just keeps spreading. I mean, this is unprecedented, miraculous stuff happening in the Muslim world. And, and now the rest of the world is beginning to catch on and, and they're looking in and they're starting to ask, hey, hey, hey what's happening here? What, what, what's your secret? How can we experience this in our city? How can we see this happen in our nation? And they keep giving the same response over and over again. They say, pray. You, you just have to pray. Ah, not really my thing. I mean, do, do you have like something else that you could give us? Maybe a strategy or a program or like a, a flyer or something? Why? They're saying, no, what we, we do is we pray. And we pray a lot. And God starts answering our prayers. And hard hearts are eventually opened. And people who were persecuting the church and, and hated us are now somehow planting churches. And so we just keep on praying. Oh. Still not my thing. I mean, is there any, 
any other strategy, anything else? Can you give us the non-prayer option? Because most of us, if we're being honest, have the prayer stamina of a three-year-old. And then you add in on top of that the secular voice of the culture in our ear, the skepticism that whispers and says, hey, what you're doing right now, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't have any effect. This isn't efficient. Why don't you just stop? 30 seconds is enough. And, and, and then while we're wrestling with those voices, we have the Twitter notifications going off on our phone and, and hundreds of fast-paced and, and pleasant distractions. And, and you put all of these things together and we have every cultural reason not to pray. You know what my New Year's resolution was for 2018? Just pray. I didn't, even put, I didn't even put limits on it, so I can't fail, technically. <laughs> but I just said, I, that's all I want to focus on this year. I have all of these things that I could focus I just, I just want to pray. You know what my hope is for 2018 for our church? It's that we become a, a praying church. Why? Because Jesus says that the field is ripe for the harvest. And, and, I, and I don't want us to miss it. I don't, I don't want to be a church that, that misses its call. I want to be a people that prayerfully enters the harvest field with Jesus, learning to see things from his perspective. I, I don't want to look out on secular society and, and only see a bunch of stuck-up intellectuals who aren't worth pursuing. No, no, no. When, when I look out, I, I want to see with Jesus' eyes and, and I want to see sheep without a shepherd harassed and, and helpless, left completely vulnerable to, to the powers of darkness and to sin and to death, uh, less helpless in, in the face of their own sin and struggle, in, in a world where hopelessness constantly threatens to break in and consume them, where purposelessness is constantly knocking at the door and, and grasping at the edges of their mind. God, have mercy on them. My hope is that we would learn to see a harvest field bursting with genuine potential in the here and now and that we would hear the words of Jesus saying this harvest field is not what it seems Spokane is not dead and dying it, it is not too far gone in fact all I need is people to partner with me and to pray and to believe in the power of the Holy Spirit for the harvest that is yet to come. Are there effective and ineffective ways to share your faith? Absolutely. There is a way for us to, to share our faith. I want us to get better at this in 2018. There's a way for us to share our faith that's effective. We don't have to. Sometimes we make things awkward when they shouldn't be awkward. Sometimes we make things difficult 
in the times and places that they shouldn't be difficult. And so we can learn to be inviting instead of confrontational. We can learn to be compelling instead of condemning. We can learn to plant seeds of curiosity and, and to stir things in a way that draws instead of pushes. We can be moved with love and compassion instead of guilt or religious duty. We can seek to understand what they believe before we then go to share what we believe. There are effective and ineffective ways to share your faith. But in either case, there's going to be difficulty. And as you meet that resistance in the field, in real time, I want you to remember, I, I want you to remember all of those disciples who showed up in China only to be told, this place is dead soil. We have no need for you here. I, I want you to remember all those disciples who showed up in the Middle East only to have their lives threatened and, and to be told, this is poisonous soil. We have no need for you here. The Bible is, is a poisonous and corrupted book. You can go or you can die. And, and now we find ourselves in, in, in that same place, in a culture that more and more is beginning to say that Jesus is no longer necessary in the secular age. Increasingly, we are hearing, go away, you are not needed here. And now we find ourselves right alongside all of those disciples, all of those foreign missionaries from the very first ones in Jerusalem. And we have to decide whose voice we're going to listen to. Are we going to listen to Jesus and what he says? Or are we going to listen to the culture? Because the voice of Jesus is saying that the future is bright, that there is a harvest to be had in this city, and now the decision sits in our laps, and we have to choose whose voice we're going to listen to and how we're going to respond. Let's pray.